Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan for the fans of the Houston Astros. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the most epic week ever of Astros baseball. If you don't follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, I guess, then you don't know what's getting ready to go on. You don't know what's getting ready to happen. Michelle, you want to introduce our guest today, our first guest this week on the most epic week ever. Yes, epic, most epic week so far. I, I like to think that this is, it's only upward and onwards but starting off the week is the man of the hour uh my favorite jeff in the game to have played uh and and on the broadcast side of things it's jeff blum how we doing fantastic good fantastic yeah we're doing good uh we just want to ask you some questions on this podcast uh ask you about broadcasting talk a little about your uh your podcast and then getting get into your uh player days so one thing i wanted to ask is towards the end of your career did you have any idea what you were going to do and how did you get into broadcasting how did that end up being what you did uh, I love this question because it's not something that I have ever, I don't know if I've ever explained it or if it's just never been, or I've never had enough time to actually talk about it because, you know, the last two years I had with the Arizona Diamondbacks, I was injured a majority of the time, spent a lot of time on the injured list and kind of realized that my body was shutting down and telling me that it was time to retire. So immediately your mind shifts to what am I going to do after the game? Because I did well, but I didn't do well enough to retire with four kids. And I knew I was going to have to work a little bit more. And I, I, I kind of, you know, in talking to uh, guys like Brad Osmus, Mark Loretta, Darren Erstead, some of these guys who I played with and then they retired and stayed in the game. And they had kind of said, if you want to stay in the game, find a way to stay in the game. And my thought was, it's, it's scouting, coaching, uh, front office, or media. And it just so happened that the year I retired, or I got released and decided to retire, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks needed a couple of games in September covered. And they asked me if I could, you know, sit in as the color analyst on two games for the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2012. And I said, you guys released me in July. You're paying me through October. I said, I've, you know, that's the least I could do for uh, what you guys are doing for me. And I, I, I broadcasted two games for the Arizona Diamondbacks, and they were absolutely atrocious. Uh, I, I did awful. I didn't know what I was doing. I was nervous. I was scared. And then uh, that offseason, I find out that Jim Crane has taken full control of the Houston Astros and Milo Hamilton is re retiring. Uh, Dave Raymond and Brett Dolan have been let go from the radio side. So there's three opportunities on the radio side. 
And Bill Brown pulled back and said he wasn't going to travel anymore. And Jim Deshays left for Chicago. So I told my agent, I go, just get me an interview. Find a way to just get me an interview so that my name gets out there. And maybe somebody will give me an opportunity uh, somewhere else if I don't if I don't do well enough. And, uh, you know, it just so happens. And maybe it's irony that uh, I end up going back and interviewing and uh, passing with flying colors. And they gave me the job in 2013. And I have been absolutely in love with my job since 2013 and couldn't be more grateful than I am right now to be one of the voices of the Houston Astros because it's been a hell of a run going from, you know, 111 losses to a World Series title to sustained greatness like these guys are doing and watching, you know, potential Hall of Fame and perennial all-stars on the field and actually being able to chat with people like you. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I know on Twitter you're really interactive with us, um, and I like uh, I know Rob and I were talking about it beforehand, but we are just so appreciative of the fact that you know you do take the time to interact with us, talk with us. Um, feel uh, I, uh, speaking from a fan point of view, it feels like we're uh, I feel really plugged into like the Astros and kind of like what's going on, and uh, because you and TK and Julia, you all are. Uh, make a point to build a good, you know, relationship with the fans. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into when I started broadcasting. I figured I'd just be, you know, a complimentary voice to Bill Brown or Alan Ashby and now Todd Callis. But it really has become that family unit with myself and Todd and Julia. And what, I, what I'm beginning to realize more and more each year that I'm around uh, fans is that we are in your living room every single night for six months out of the year and you do create a, a bit of a family atmosphere in the sense that you know somebody might be washing dishes and listening to the game uh, somebody might be sitting down you know helping their children with homework or trying to encourage their kids to watch the Astros games and we get to be that inter integral part but then Twitter opens itself up to really make it a little more personal and a little more interactive and that wasn't something I set out to do. It was something that was kind of uh, organic, you know, to use a term that's maybe overused. But the reason it, it started organically is because the fans were so interactive. You know, the first couple of years, nobody could watch an Astros game between 2013 and 14. So a lot of it, you know, happened through social media. And I got a lot of questions and created that rapport with, you know, hashtag Astros Twitter and it really developed into some really good friendships and good interaction. And I'm all, I've always been a guy that has encouraged the conversation when, when it's when you're able to have the conversation. And, we, you know, it's, it's impossible to have a conversation with a Yankee fan sometimes or a Dodger fan <laughs> sometimes. But but if you can have the conversation, the conversation's a great thing. And that, we, you know, we're going to learn from each other about how great the game of baseball is and how to enjoy watching an Astros game because the interaction has been so good between fans initially who started this. And then I've just reciprocated because the fans have been so good to me. Piggybacking on what uh, Michelle said, I mean, you really make us feel like you know who we are. And a, a good example of this is uh, there was a game last season and y'all are talking about Anolis cannolis <laughs> and and I had I tweeted that I, I don't know if y'all said we need a name for uh, Castellanos but I said mm -hmm. I, I said Castellanos Chilirianos and it was like late in the game and we were getting blown out 
and you guys, you you read the tweet, and you said, you know, that was Rob Fontenot, and and Todd was like, man, Rob's all over it, and and I posted that on Facebook, and these guys are like, do they know who you are? And I said, <laughs> I don't think so, but it sounds like it. Yeah, well, we we do know who you there. It's you know, it's almost like an episode of Cheers where you have your regulars, and. Um, Throughout the course of the game, we cheer together, we we jeer together, you know, we we share the heartbreak together, because uh, I think that's what's kind of unique about us, you know, Julia, Todd, myself, is that you're going to feel the excitement, you're going to feel the sometimes the boringness of a game, and sometimes you're going to feel the the pain of the game, and I think we're all feeling it together, and that's what creates kind of that that uh, that continuity between the fan and the broadcaster, but. Uh, yeah, we we know who's on there regularly, and we know who who to interact with, and we know who's passionate. We know who's who's being true, which is probably the the best thing about it. And we also know who's going to be consistent. And Astros Twitter has been very consistent. And you really test you really test the fan base when you're a centrally located team who's playing on the West Coast. And uh, the tried and true that have stayed up with us many of sleepless <laughs> night. Uh, you know, on the West Coast, those are how you develop those 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 tight bonds. And uh, uh, why not give give people like you, Rob or Michelle, give them a shout out and let them know that we are we are listening and reading those tweets and and having a good time watching baseball together. Um, I know that it was a few years ago. I think it was last year because I turned thirty that you did like cameo shout out to me and I was just like my mind was blown. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But uh <laughs> Rob and I talked last week uh uh talking about you know the late games and how you guys coined the term Astros after dark <laughs> about doing a late night edition of the Astros baseball podcast modeled after Astros After Dark. Mm-hmm. No we en- we enjoy Astros After Dark. That's something that uh, you know we we <laughs> We, we've done some fun stuff like, you know, the trip to the treehouse or Julia and her cricket episode. Uh, you know, we, we try to be as creative as we can, but uh, I, I would love for all of the fans who are listening to your podcast and hopefully TK and Julia can back me up on this. But we do have some crazy ideas that get shot down frequently, but uh, <laughs> it, it's mo- it's mostly to entertain the fan. And it's and a lot of it is to entertain us too because we you know we want to we want to show some of that fun and goofy side every once in a while especially on those games that are on the West Coast you know and, and it's mostly it's I feel like it's mostly some of those Seattle games where you know the Astros are just absolutely putting a pounding on the Mariners again and we're trying to figure out what to talk about and that's when we get a little we get a little loopy sometimes shall we say yeah I stay up for those games and you know it's almost midnight and I got to wake up at four 30 in the morning, but I'm still there. Uh, you know, I try to go to sleep and I can't, you know, I'm like, cause my phone will go off with an alert. So I'll turn it back <laughs> yep. on. But you know, you came up with a question that I hadn't thought about when you, when you mentioned the, uh, before we started, uh, recording, you mentioned something about, about, uh, them saying stuff in your earpiece. Like what kind of things oh, yeah. do they tell you while you're, while you're broadcasting inside scoop here? Yeah, so one of the things I learned early on in broadcasting was when we have our headset on, there's an actual, like, there's a box that our headset is plugged into, and there's two buttons on that box. One of them is a red button, which basically shuts it down. It's called a cough button. Uh, I think, you know, my producer likes to call it the burp or sneeze button for me. 
And, you know, it shuts down the mic so you guys can't hear some of the stuff that I'm, you know, some of the noises I'm making when I'm, you know, I'm clearing my throat or if I got to sneeze or if I do have a have to belch or something crazy like that. And then there's a white button that's, that says truck and it will go straight to the producers. So if you know, every time you guys see a graphic or a replay or a different camera angle, maybe it's because I'm requesting it or my producer is presenting it to me. And that's what they'll get in my ear and say, they'll, you know, TK will be describing the play and I will immediately ask, you know, I, I, could you get a high home shot of that? Could you, could you get me a camera that's keyed on Carlos Correa because his reaction was great off the bat. Um, and then the producer will get back to me and goes, Hey, we got a great replay of a side swing of your Don hitting one into the third deck. And uh, you know, here comes the replay. Here comes the graphic. Uh, they'll tell us when to, they'll prompt us when to, you know, read some of the advertisements that we have. But a lot of times, to be brutally honest, if you got, you know, when you all are watching a game and you have that knee jerk gut reaction to a play, whether it be, you know, hell yeah or hell no, you know, I can't say that on air, you know, and granted it, sometimes it's not hell. Sometimes it's some other word. <laughs> you know, I'll let you be imaginative with it. <laughs> yeah. But, I will push down the, the white button and I will say to our producer, you got to be kidding me. Or I'll be like, hell no, that didn't just happen. Or, oh, oh my, you know, so I can let my initial reaction go through that button into my producer's uh, headset. And then I can kind of tone it down, you know, think about what I want to say and where I want to go with the replay when it comes on and then and move along. But yeah, there's a lot of banter inside of our ear, especially when you see us on camera before, uh, the game starts and we're on there live. We actually still have our earpiece in where the producers, you know, counting us down, uh, telling us when we're going to break and uh, stuff like that. So it, it, that's one of the hardest things I had to learn. Well, for every reaction that you can't see on air, you just know that I'm probably shouting it extra loud. I'll shout it extra loud. Yes. Well, yeah. Make sure if you could do that for me, I would greatly appreciate that. That's good to hear. You Did you have to push word. the white button when Hosey on TV had the yips? Fortunately, I wasn't on camera oh, for that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's on. right. You know, that happened in, in uh, you know, that's one of those things moving into 2021 that I'm kind of curious about. But uh, that was that was, that was was tough to watch. And you know what? I played, I, I remember watching Mackie Sasser, and I remember talking to Alan Ashby about it with guys that he played with when he was in, playing in his career. And I remember there were guys that I knew had the yips when we played together, but it, it's one of those things where it's, I don't know, I, I don't know what to compare it to, but it's something that you know is going to happen, but you can't watch, but you still watch, you know, it's, it's that it's, it's painful. And I feel for Jose Altuve because that's something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy in the game. Hmm. Go ahead, Michelle. Uh, yes. So it's, Speaking of, you know, like, uh, not being on camera, uh, I wanted to know how, um, I mean, I guess this is like a few parts question. So what was your, uh, how do you think the fans on the road will impact the Astros this season, impact you, just kind of influence uh, the Houston Astros as a whole, you know, the fan base and player and the player side? Yeah, that that's going to be a tough one. I think it, uh, you know, because I think because the news is so fresh from last year, because we're a year removed when the when the announcement came out, 
about uh, the sign stealing scandal from 2017. The one thing that gets to me is, you know, it's 2017. There's a handful of guys from that team still on the team now. But uh, the fans, you, you guys know as well as I do, being a fan means you're fanatical about your team. And as soon as you see a chink in the armor of, a, of an opposing team, you kind of go after it or you wear it out or you use it as you use it against them when you're playing against them or if you're in you know a dispute on who's the best player or who's the best team. Uh, it, you know, it's a fallback. It's a crutch. It's something that a fan can go back and use as a weapon. And I think that uh, without having fans in the stands last year uh, was interesting in the sense that there were no fans able to get their voices out there. And I think this might be the year where they have that pent up aggression and they go out there or it could be a situation where they are exhausted with it. And they don't want to pay the money to go to a game to do that to the Astros. I don't know. And I'm kind of curious to see how it works out for the Astros because, you know, for years when you go on the road, one of the best things about being an opposing athlete in a stadium is, is shutting down the, the home crowd that you're playing in front of. And I guarantee you, and I mean, we can go ahead and I don't think we're going to, you know, fool anybody by saying that Carlos Correa might be at the top of this list who wants to go out there and shut these people up and prove to them that they're great ball players? Because if you've watched the Astros long enough, you know that 2017, no matter how drastic everybody else makes it, we know these guys are good ball players. We know they're good dudes, and we know that they're going to go out there and continue to compete and play great baseball. So part of me worries about it, but there's also a part of me that wants them to go out there and play in front of these crowds and have these fans give them what they feel they're justified in giving them, but at the same time, I think it creates an, an extremely good opportunity for, you know, Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa, Yuli Gurriel, uh, Jose Altuve, these guys to go out there and just kind of go out there and go about their business and say, you know what, I'm glad you got your voices out there, but so did we. And when they go out there and get a couple of knocks on home runs and start racking up some wins. You're saying the fans may be tired of it already, but I know on social media, they're not, I mean, there's not Good one Lord, person no. associated with the Astros. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 I've, I've said this on the podcast many times. You know, they, they'll post stuff like, here's some things for your kids to color. And people's all over it. But anyway, let's not talk about that. We all, we all know well, what's you know going what? on. Oh, go ahead. No, here's my thing. Put your face on it. Don't give me this clown egg avatar. Put your face on it direct it to me and if you want to have the conversation let's have the conversation man and your team damn well better not have had any kind of scandal in its in its past so you know what that eliminates about 95 percent of the teams uh yeah especially yankees fans um i wrote a like for a class in college um recently i wrote this whole like paper on how affluence within the mlb breeds a is a breeding ground for uh, further, you know, corruption. And then I detailed like the history of scandal involving the Steinbrenners. And let me tell you, it is intense. They were involved in Watergate. Like that was just the start. Yeah. You did some serious research. Good for you. Well, I mean, it's, it's as recently, you know, in the eighties with, with the Chicago White Sox that they were, you know, they had someone in the scoreboard doing the same exact thing, but but nobody cares. Yeah, that was Jack McDowell. Well, they should care now because yeah. the guy who was a part of that and a part of the steroid scandal is now back in the, on their bench. Yeah. Tony La Russa. Yeah, that guy. Oh, La Russa. Um, so let me ask you this. Um, 
last year y'all had the COVID restrictions and you you called the games on the road in Houston, right? In the press box at yeah. home? Uh, no, you know what? Uh, sorry to jump in, but uh, we would call games from Minute Maid Park when the Astros were at home. And then when they were on the road, we were actually in AT&T studios that are right next to the House of Blues. Oh, okay. So what's it going to be like in 2021? Have you heard anything about that? Um, as far as I know, I know for a fact that we are not going down for spring training games. And uh, so we will be doing those from the studio. Uh, I know that radio is down there in Florida. So those guys, Robert Ford and uh, Steve Sparks, are extremely lucky to get down there. I'm not sure how much access they have to players, but at least they're in there watching those games live, which is a great thing. And then uh, during the regular season, I think for – man – you know, nothing, nothing has been confirmed, but if I had to guess, if, if I was just putting myself out there personally and saying, this is my idea of what happens, I would imagine the first half of the season up until the All-Star break, it will be very similar to where we call road games from the studio, home games from Minute Maid Park, and then uh, maybe around the All-Star break, it depends, you know, I mean, it's a pretty fluid situation with the vaccines and the rollouts and the tier one, tier two that baseball's using. And uh, maybe we become a part of that in the second half of the season, which I'm kind of fingers crossed hoping for. Okay. The, one of the last things I wanted to ask kind of about the broadcast side of things, what are, uh, besides the Astros fans, because we, it's a given that we are the best fans ever. Uh, yes. Who, I agree. Outside of the Astros fans, who are the most pleasant opposing fans to deal with and who are the worst opposing fans to deal with? In your experience, is is it bad if I say the White Sox fans? If I think they're just nice to me because of certain situations. Oh yes, we, <laughs> the situation that shall not be named. Yes, no, no. So <laughs> between us, no, the, the White Sox fans have actually done a very good job in watching. They were, I think, it's interesting that the White Sox fans have been very congenial towards the Astros organization and myself. Because if you watch what the White Sox are doing, it's very similar to what the Astros went through as far as their process to become a very competitive team. And then, of course, the addition of Dallas Keuchel up there. You know, there was a lot of interaction between myself and White Sox fans asking about Dallas Keuchel. Um, uh, Oakland fans, believe it or not, have been pretty decent to me online because I do a lot of radio interviews in Northern California. So the interaction... Uh, has been very good between them, both on the radio and uh, through social media. Uh, I'm trying to think. You know, Yankee Yankee fans, I, I have not had one Yankee fan really, you know, try to have a conversation. Uh, not too many Dodger fans want to have the conversation or, or say anything baseball-related as far as it's concerned in current times. Um, but for the most part, Ranger fan, yeah, Ranger fans, I don't think appreciate when I, you know, some of the some of the stuff that I say, say <laughs> and have have a good time with, uh, you know. But it's warranted because you know when I first started this job, like you know I talked about earlier, we were getting the Astros are getting pounded on, and we're trying to you know make it make it look good as the Rangers are scoring twelve runs a game. So when it finally came the Astros' turn to uh, to take it to the Rangers, I took full advantage and you know came up with South Oklahoma and. Mimic made park and and had some fun with that, but uh, that that hasn't created a very good relationship with Ranger fans, to say the least. So you've been really busy, like like during the season, calling the games and whatever, and interviews, TV, all of this stuff. But 
Where'd you find the time to start a podcast with David Tuttle? <laughs> um, it was one of those things that the genesis of it was, you know, maybe about 15 years ago when our kids were going to the same school in California and he knew who I was. I knew his name, but I'd never met him personally, but he, he approached me and goes, Hey, uh, I went to, you know, I went to a rival college. Uh, I played with this guy. I played with that guy. I was like, no way. I go, did you play with him? Oh yeah. Did you play against him? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, it spawned all these stories that kind of overlapped between us because he's only a year older than me, I think. And, and, and so we had a lot of crossover and cross contamination as far as friends were concerned or teammates and, opponents. Uh, so we, we created a good relationship in that sense, because we had so much in common. And then it kind of turned into, you know, at drop off in the morning, we would sit in the parking lot for a good 45 minutes talking about, you know, the latest NFL controversy, or the latest, you know, Major League Baseball trade, or he would start talking to me about certain situations that he saw when I was still playing. And I said, you know, when I get a job later on, we're going to end up doing this as a podcast. I go, cause you know, my wife's texting me, are you, where are you at? Are you ever coming home? <clears throat> are you ever coming home? Could you get some milk on the way home? So I said, you know, we might as well have some fun with this and record it. And you know, we, it, it took a while and it took a lot of work, but uh, you know, cause I'm in the public sphere. You guys have put yourself in the public sphere and it's not easy to put yourself out there. So it took a little convincing on Tuttle's part to get him out there. But once he, you know, once he got going, uh, he had a lot of fun with it. And I think he's actually, you know, progressed and turned into a reasonably good personality on our podcast. And, uh, he, you know, he does the work and he's, he's got a unique point of view on things. And I enjoy having those podcasts with him. So uh, I want to uh, piggyback off of what you said, uh, Genesis wise, what is your, um, origin story as far as uh i wanted to shift to the bait to your player the player side of things what is your origin story with a uh, baseball how did you get started was it like your dad that kind of got you interested yeah you know it, it, that's a good question and i know that everybody's story is pretty unique but mine mine started in in t-ball you know with uh with my a good group of, of friends that i had my dad was my coach and uh, believe it or not, when I started in T-ball, one of my uh, teammates was Mike Sweeney, who ended up playing for the Kansas City Royals for about 12 years and then ended up going. I believe he went to the World Series with the Philadelphia Phillies also. Uh, so Mike Sweeney and I were teammates from the age of six years old until about 14 years old. And we're still great friends to this day. But it was kind of unique that we started our 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 careers together in baseball to, you know, at such a young age, but, you know, my dad put me in baseball, really pushed me in the game. Uh, but I was a good enough athlete to play basketball, uh, was too skinny to play football. So I played basketball, ran track and, uh, played a lot of soccer. And, you know, I think when my dad, the one thing I remember is when my dad kind of sat me down, cause I was, I'm going to be a big leader. I'm going to go to the major leagues. I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. And my dad sat me down and, you know, basically broke out a piece of paper and a pen and started writing numbers on it saying, these are how many people are in America. These are how many people that uh, play baseball. These are how many people actually play division one baseball. These are how many people, you know, play minor league baseball. And then he got down to the smallest number on the piece of paper. And those are the ones that make it to the big leagues. And I think he was trying to give me some reality in the sense of how hard it was going to be. 
And, you know, I took it as motivation, obviously, because I wanted to work hard. But at the same time, I was like, man, I go, those those odds are so small that I figure I'm going to go out there, work my tail off. But I'm also going to have a a lot of fun doing it. And I, I really think that helped my temperament in a game that is based on failure. And I think it actually helped me become a utility guy and not worry about what role or what label I had when I played in the big leagues. I just wanted to play. And uh, I think that really helped me out. But uh, that's that's kind of how it started for me. It wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, my end goal, but it was it, it was something I always had in the back of my mind. And baseball has given me so much. Baseball gave me, you know, a, a scholarship to the University of California, Berkeley, where I got to learn how to be a student athlete. And I matured as a man. I matured as a, as a physical human being to play the game. And I also, you know, I, I'm indebted to my college coach there, Bob Milano, who became the father figure in my life for me. And all of a sudden, here I am talking on TV because of that education that baseball gave me. And I, I couldn't be more grateful for the opportunities that the game has opened up for me. But uh, I, I'm a true believer in, in working hard and having fun. Can you tell me about uh, the day you got drafted? And I know you played with the Expos, who are no longer there. <laughs> kind of like, you know, tell me that you're, you know, real quick, your draft story. And what, what, is, what was it like, you know, playing Major League Baseball in Canada? Well, I don't know how many of your fans understand that cell phones weren't around when I was getting drafted. Um, so, so uh, it, it, you know, that first, first year that, or the first day of the draft that went by, you know, I had all the conversations with scouts that said, Oh, you're going to be a, you know, a top three round pick. And I was like, okay, you know, you know, proof is in the pudding kind of thing. If you draft me in the third round, I'll believe you. And the first day went by, I didn't get drafted, but I got drafted the second day in the seventh round uh, by the Montreal Expos. And I was at a point in my collegiate career where, you know, I had made it to the College World Series. Uh, I had become all Pac-10, and I really felt like I was ready to kind of unplug from school and go try something a little bit different. And when I got drafted, I kind of had my mindset on getting drafted. But uh, I was actually with my girlfriend in high school at the mall because I didn't, I couldn't handle sitting at home. I was get, becoming restless, and my mom was like, "You need to get out of the house." And we actually went to the mall for, you know, a good two or three hours. And when I came back, that's when my, you know, my mom and dad presented me with a piece of paper that had, uh, I believe it was Bill Stoneman at the time, uh, was the GM of the, of the Montreal Expos and it had his number on it. And I proceeded to give, uh, you know, Stoneman a call and he said, you've been drafted in the seventh round. And, uh, it was great because the scout that drafted me, there's a guy named John Hughes who used to be the pitching coach at Cal. So I already had a relationship with him. So it kind of made it that much more special when somebody who I had a relationship with drafted me and, and got me into pro ball. But uh, it was an exciting day. I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget, you know, how quickly the process happens because you go from the excitement of knowing that you're wanted to play professional baseball and you get your you get the signing bonus, and immediately there's a plane ticket right next to the you know the signing bonus that says, "Okay, get on a plane and go to Burlington, Vermont, and uh, you know start your career." Well, I know that uh, we're approaching our to- uh, the end of our time together, but um, just a few last questions. Um, <laughs> 
about uh, about how you see the way that uh, what do you think about the way the game is played today? Um, and do you have any uh, if you could put any advice or, you know, words of uh, experience out there to the younger players or MLB hopefuls, what would those be? The, the game has evolved in, in an incredible way, even from the moment that I, I got released to, you know, right now, which has only been eight or nine years. Uh, you know, when I was playing, and I hate to use that phrase because everybody, you know, can't stand the, the color commentator that's like, back in my day. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, there, but, but the question presents the opportunity for that, you know, so, you know, as I was playing in my career, you know, I learned that being a utility guy was unique. Uh, it was necessary. But at the same time, for me to be able to stay in the game as long as I did, didn't necessarily mean that my OPS plus was above average. It didn't mean that I was getting on base at this accelerated clip. It meant that I had to be a personable guy. I had to be a leader from the bench. I had to be encouragement for guys that were playing on a daily basis. I had to, you know, be a little bit smarter at the end of the bench and kind of manage along with the managers I played with so that I knew when to be prepared. Uh, it meant watching my peers and helping them get through slumps or seeing tendencies. I was like, Hey man, you need to, you know, you need to stop throwing that two, two breaking ball. Cause everybody's starting to sit on it or, you know, that back shoulders dropping a little bit and you're starting to pop that pop the ball up. You know, that's where I kind of found where I could be a little more valuable and maybe extend my career a little bit. And that's where I think the game has evolved into a sense where the numbers have dictated so much that you've kind of lost the personality of the game and the character of the game. And, you know, you, you always have these ideas in your head of, of how the game's moving. But until somebody like Theo Epstein really steps out and says, hey, the game is headed in a bad direction because we're putting so much emphasis on the strikeout, the walk, and the home run, that the actual value of the game is decreasing a little bit. And that's where I think, you know, the game needs to kind of take a step back, reevaluate the situation, and bring back, in, you know, some of these specialty-type players, the leadoff guy, the, the, the two-hole hitter, and playing a, more of a team game instead of, hey, I'm going to get on base, stand at first base, and wait for somebody to, you know, hit a home run so I can jog around the bases. But uh, I think the athletes are getting better. That's another aspect that I absolutely love about the game is watching some of these guys that are going out here on a daily basis being as athletic and as good as they are. You know, the best, the best instance I can give is Alex Bregman is a, a, you know, drafted as a shortstop, but he's such a good athlete. And knowing the team situation, he moves to third base, and all of a sudden you've created the best left side of the infield in baseball with Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman because they're both phenomenal athletes, but Alex Bregman is understands the game well enough that he knows the team's going to be better with him at third. So I think that's excellent. Um, I, I also, you know, you talked about advice and I get this question a lot, you know, because I survived for 14 years in the major leagues. Um, I get this question a lot from uh, players when I was on rehab assignments or even now, you know, what advice do you have for that young ball player? And I always say work, work harder than the next guy. And what that means to me was when I was playing is I would take one more ground ball than the guy I was taking ground balls with. Uh, if I was in the cage, I would try and be, you know, take one more swing than the guy in front of me uh, and be the first guy to the ballpark, be the last guy to leave. Uh, the next one would be play hard, P 
play extremely hard because you don't know when this game is going to take everything away, whether it be injury, whether it be a guy behind you that's going to take your job. So that's another reason to play as hard as you can. I learned that from, you know, Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell. Those guys were, were Hall of Famers in 0203 when I was playing with them, but they played as if it was going to be the last game they ever played. And the third one, and maybe the most important one, especially considering where I, I sit on a daily basis in, in my career right now with the Astros as a color commentator is don't piss anybody off. <laughs> you, 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 you don't know when you're going to have to go back and ask them for a job or ask them for an opportunity, ask them for a reference or ask them for advice. You know, there, there are a lot of people in this game and uh, you know, uh, it being in the fraternity of baseball, it is very tight. It is very strict and it's very opinionated. And uh, the more congenial and the more, uh, you know, the, the more uh, affable you can be and uh, with people, the better you're going to be in the game and be able to stick around for a long time. So uh, work hard, play harder and don't don't piss anybody off. My last question, should they ban the shift? I, you know what, man, I am torn on this. Cause if, if, you know, if you ask me on a day where, you know, Justin Verlander is giving up, you know, broken bat singles the other way, I'm going, dang the shift, you know, get rid of it. And then uh, there's another day where I you know, I'll say, you know, maybe a guy doesn't have his best stuff and they're hitting rockets right at into the shift and they're getting it out every time the guy throws eight innings of one run baseball. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's an example of where the shift works, you know, and uh, try and make it sound good. But um, I'm, I'm a fan of the shifts because I think it brings in some of the intellect. It brings in a lot of the data and it, and it, what you're trying to do in any game is create the opportunity to win. And uh, you know, all of us who watch baseball understand that as win probability, and you're going to increase your win probability. If you get more outs than the other team quicker and you score more runs. And that's where I think the shift has really done a good job in cutting down some of that. I would like to see some of the hitters adjust better and go the other way and take advantage of the shift. But uh, I think the aggressive, how about we do this? How about, you know, how about we say we cut down on the aggressive shifting, you know, where you have seven guys on one side of the field and the only guy out there is the left fielder in left field and everybody else is on the right side, you know, maybe maybe you do limit how far they can actually shift or how many times you can, you know, move that many players on that side of the diamond, because I do think that that kind of takes away from it a little bit, but, you know, if, but again, it goes back to the, the hitter being able to adapt and to adjust because one way to get everybody to stop shifting is beat the shift, but nobody chooses to, to beat the shift because we know that bunting doesn't pay uh, getting singles the other way doesn't pay. Uh, the home runs pay. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry we uh, didn't want to take up too much of your time. I think that's all that, uh, at least for this uh, visit, uh, that's all that I wanted to kind of get out there. No, I, how about this? I appreciate you being concerned about that, but I've got a question for you guys because you guys are tried and true fans to the point where you know, you do tweet at us. You do watch every game. You've started a podcast. You talk a lot about the Astros. You make me feel good about my job. But what? explain to me the mentality of the Astro fan. And I'll start with you, Michelle. If you could just real quickly kind of tell me, you know, what is the – and then I'll go to you, Rob. But, you know, explain <laughs> to everybody 
who is hopefully going to have an opportunity to listen to this podcast. Tell me about the mentality and what it means to be an Astro fan. Oh, man. I think um, I try, I've toned down way, way, way much, a lot since the scandal broke. But when the scandal broke, I was a mean one because I'm uh, like, I have a really good understanding of like analytics. Like I have a really good understanding of kind of the inner workings of what would an Astros fan means resilience, means dedication, means loyalty, means really loving your city and your team through and through, you know, regardless of what happened. Obviously, if there was just like something super unforgivable, like committing a crime against humanity, I couldn't support the, any of the, like, I couldn't support any player that did that. But um, that's just tried and true kind of, uh, you know, acknowledging, yeah, what happened, happened, but you know what, we're going to go out there and win. Just, uh, it's a little bit humbling. It's really complex. I will say that. Um, mm-hmm. fortunately I was given a good foundation. You know, my dad was the one who got me into it. Um, you know, nice. he gave me his, um, he actually gave me his glove from when he was younger this past Chris, this past Christmas. Awesome. What about you, Rob? Well, if you're talking about the mentality now, as far as because basically being an Astro fan now is defending your team constantly. And Mm -hmm. what, what I hate is that everyone thinks that Astro fans were okay with what happened and we're not. I mean, I didn't believe it when I heard about it. I thought it was just Yankee fans. You know, it just sounded outrageous. And I didn't believe it at all. And when I really saw the videos and heard what was happening, I mean, I was sick to my stomach. I mean, I I was really, truly upset about it. And for people to say that we're okay with it and we condone, you know, we, we do say we're not the only ones that did it. I mean, in 2017, the Yankees, yeah, that's the truth. They got, uh, fine for using the dugout phone to relay signs. The Red Sox uh, were using their uh, Apple watches. And then there's just a history of it. But everybody treats us like we're the only ones that's ever done it. And another thing is they treat people on Twitter and you know social media, they treat the fans of the Astros like we're the ones that did it. And that, so, so you have to have a thick skin and you just have to roll with it, you know? You just, that's it. Yeah. It just no, made me... Think, I'm so ahead. sorry to interrupt. No, it just no, made ahead. me incredibly open, uh, incredibly open-minded and, like, able to... Um, I don't want to sound, like, cheesy when I say this, but I think it helped the personal growth when, you know, yeah, we had to acknowledge what we did was wrong. They don't treat us very well. The national media doesn't treat us very well. There's this one reporter uh, or this one guy. I don't even know why he is relevant. Dan Clark. He just like it's there's certain people who just live to like to. uh, He does it to get like disrespect. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they live to for clickbait. They live to disrespect us. They live to disrespect the Astros. And uh, I've said this multiple times and I will say this through and through and through the Astros have many great people working with them. You, TK, Julia, the players. Those are really good people. And any time that the city has been in a lot of trouble or needed help, the amount of kindness, the amount of resilience, strength, 
community that I've seen come out of Houston is incredible. And then me personally, when I was going through an extremely difficult time last year, the first people uh, that were there were people from Astros Twitter. The first people who really helped me out when I needed to raise money for my brother's funeral expenses were Astros Twitter. Wow. Well, that's, that's outstanding. And I, and that, that's what gives me hope a little bit too. And what makes me enjoy the job. And I know that you're going to be able to have the opportunity to talk to two unbelievable people and Todd Callis, who's got a great story, Julia Morales, who is actually has one of the most beautiful daughters that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, you know, and that's coming from a guy who has four daughters. So you'll have a chance to talk to two incredible people with incredible stories. But one thing that that's I don't know. Tomorrow. If yeah, that you guys are going to have fun with them. They're they're awesome, and I and you go ahead and you know have them rag me to death because I know I'm probably one of the <laughs> least professional people on that crew. I guarantee it. But one thing that jumped out to me, Michelle, and I don't know if you noticed it, was you said "city" twice, and that's one thing I've noticed in playing with Houston and now broadcasting with Houston is is as complex as it is being an Astro fan. It's just as complex being a Houstonian. But one thing that has actually happened has been that 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 galvanizing of a city and a baseball team and a community, and that's probably what I have enjoyed the most about being, you know living in Houston for the last nine years or the last four or five years, and then being around this community, like you said, and understanding how we're you know it really does feel like we are all in it together because we you know we feel the pain, we feel the joy. We understand, uh, you know, that things aren't always going to go our way. But one thing that always happens is we pick each other up. So I appreciate you guys having me on your podcast. I wish you guys nothing but luck and uh, good fortune moving forward with this. And uh, many more good times between all of us, uh, whether it be social media or hopefully someday having a having an adult beverage together somewhere. Oh, you bet. Astros baseball after dark. Well, Jeff, we appreciate you coming on and. And taking the leadoff position here on the most epic week ever. Uh, folks, tomorrow is uh, Julia Morales, who was actually the first person to agree to this. And it's, it was just an amazing day, an amazing day the other day. And we've already talked about what happened, but we've got a great week lined up. Jeff was amazing. Uh, Julia is going to be amazing. We got, we got everybody. If they have anything to do with the TV or radio, with the exception of Steve Sparks, we got them. Um, Jeff, where can we find you uh, on Twitter? Well, I know where I can find you on Twitter, but for those listening, where can they find you on Twitter and where can they find your podcast? Uh, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, just real simple, at Blummer27 on both of those platforms. And then if you uh, go into iTunes and just, you know, look for Bleacher Blums, you'll find my podcast on there. And of course, bleacherblums.com is where you can also find an archive of all of the uh, podcasts that we've put out there. Uh, some of the early ones are very interesting and you can make plenty of fun of us on that one, but you can also go to jeffblum.com and maybe learn a little bit more about myself and uh, some of the stuff that I'm doing throughout the community also. All right, Jeff, thanks again. Uh, Michelle, great job on your very first interview. You know, you, you swung for the fences and you got a major league player, very popular guy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we'll see you next time, guys. We got six shows in a row. Tomorrow will be Julie Morales. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be alerted when there's a new episode. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.